Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of AFK is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Starting is easy. Servers start at just $5 a month. You can choose your flavor of Linux, then pick a location that's right for you. London, Tokyo, Dallas, anywhere in the world, they've got you covered. Go from having that amazing shower idea to a hosted website in minutes. You can start small and expand as your idea blossoms into a hit. Get the most out of your Linode with great add-ons like backups, block storage, DNS management built in, and professional services to help you migrate sites or even perform more complex sysadmin tasks. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. That's four months free. Once again, linode.com slash changelog. Changelog Media, this is Away From Keyboard, a show exploring the human side of creative work. I'm Tim Smith. After years of consulting, Erin O'Neill decided to find a full-time gig. Her job search took an exhausting three and a half months where she had everything from informal coffees to sit-down interviews. She now works at Modern Tribe, an agency that's mostly distributed but has an office here in Minneapolis. Erin is the company's first female engineering manager. And she told me that depending on how you do the math, she's the company's first female engineer. I just point blank said that in my interview. I was like, so this is a thing. Let's talk about that. And we did. And like, obviously, when you ask a thing like that, they can't fix it right there, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. nothing that can be done. It's just where they are. So what you're really doing is saying like, I want to see how you think and talk about this. Like, I want to know if when I bring this up, how does this conversation go? The answers were like, yeah, we know and we want to fix that. And actually, that's part of what we're really excited about bringing you on, not to make you a token, but rather like they know that I'm pretty active in like the inclusion diversity sort of conversations. And they were like, we want you to bring that to us. And I was like, sweet, good, because I'm going to say a lot of things that make a lot of people uncomfortable. (laughs) And I'm glad that you're saying now that I have your blessing. Uh, And so far, I have maintained that blessing. Do you enjoy management? I do. Okay. Yeah, I know that makes me super weird in the development world, but I really do like managing. I got into it very much on purpose. It's actually why I came out of consulting. I realized that I wanted to manage people, and I thus needed people to manage. So being an independent person was not going to work anymore. Um. I, There's only so long you can manage your imaginary yeah, employees. Yeah, like right? manage myself was yeah. not going well. I'm a terrible person to manage. Sorry to my <laughs> boss. Um, I've been working professionally for 10 years. I know how to develop. I've never particularly love loved it. Like the way that some mm. people can go home at night and like their treat after working for someone else all day is to program on their own stuff. That has literally never been me a day in my life. Like I just don't do that. And so I put in my time. And I learned a lot, but what I really like doing is solving problems. And I think that people are the most interesting problem. I feel like technology is, okay, that's fine. But I wanted to facilitate other people's work and I wanted to figure out how to make other people be the best. And frankly, like you develop opinions after having your own managers about what you like and what you don't like. And I got to a point where I was like, all right, I want to try this. Like I have some ideas. (laughs) Um, So there was also that. Yeah, it's a great fit because I really like engineering. I like the world of software. 
I like technology. I think it is one of the most important places that someone can work right now because whether we like it or not, it is affecting everything and everyone. And because of that, I want to be involved in the human side of it because I think that that is what has been under-recognized and, and underrepresented in a lot of these conversations. What do you mean by the human side of, of things? Well, so some of the, like, the canonical examples, I feel like, are the easy examples are, you say, Facebook. They've solved some pretty gnarly technical challenges in terms of scale, in terms of how do you work with that much data? Just how do you have a, even a team of that, like a company of that size with that many engineers? How do you even work together? They've solved some really interesting problems, but as we all know, at the expense of some more human ones, um, some problems that are more about, okay, we can solve this problem, but should we apply it in the way we're applying it? Um, one example that I go to a lot is there's a famous developer named Eric Meyer, and he had a daughter who her name was Rebecca, and she got really, really, really sick. And she was sick in the way where you know that she is going to die. Like he knew he was going to lose his daughter. And so he just, because he is this internet personality, was was posting about it all the time. That's just sort of what he did with his life. And uh, his daughter did eventually die. It was towards the end of the year. And so he posted sort of like one last like farewell kind of post like, OK, everybody's been following along. Here it is. And this is all happening on Facebook. And this is right before Facebook launched their year in review feature. This was also back when Facebook just had likes. They didn't have, you know, like and happy and sad and angry and heart and stuff. And so he logs in on like January 1st and there is this giant picture of his daughter with all these, this like animations around it of like happy little New Year's people and fireworks and all that stuff. And they're like, look at your most liked picture from last year. Here's your year in review. We hope it was a great one. And it was just obviously a terribly insensitive thing. Horribly, horribly difficult for him. So he, he turns off the computer and ends up writing quite a lot about what he eventually terms inadvertent algorithmic cruelty, which is an incredibly rich topic where basically it's, it's when algorithms are accidentally hurtful to people. And that is a place where technology and people intersect because, okay, the algorithm was very clever. You know, like it, it did manage to find the post that had the most engagement, whatever engagement means. But there wasn't a lot of thought given to the fact that not everybody puts only good stuff on the mm -hmm. internet um, and that a like doesn't mean a like necessarily. And I actually personally believe that that's, a huge part of where the wider set of emoji reactions came from was, right. I mean, story similar to his. He wasn't the only person by any means, but just realizing like, oh, my gosh, we need like a deeper kind of data. But this still happens all the time, um, even specifically in Facebook's point. You know, like there are people who somebody just posted the other day on Twitter that they had this same sort of like review memory thing that came up. And it was a picture of their mother's gravestone with a bunch of happy cartoon people on it. And it's just like, right. that's cruel. That's evil. Um, no one did it on purpose. And in fact, in every case I'm aware of, once Facebook engineers found out, they fixed it. But if we are going to have technology in our lives the way that we absolutely are and do right now, we also need people thinking about the implications of that technology before these things happen to people. Because this is a very cruel example, but it is still only one person. and. And it is, it's not hard to see how this scales and spreads and just becomes something that is can affect any of us anytime. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, I, I feel like 
that's such an interesting topic because, you know, I, I remember around that time when that happened and it, it really did bring to light that there is, there was like a, there is, and I still think that there is, there is a shortage of ways to communicate on the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes we're given very specific options, you yeah. know, like, I, I mean, I can, I can think of just a few weeks ago, you know, one of my friends, they, they, their dog died, mm -hmm. but, but, but the only option on Instagram is like, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and how, and like you, you're in that like conundrum where, how do I tell this person, man, I'm, I'm sorry for this without flooding comments. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, well, the, the like button isn't really what I'm trying to communicate here. And, and, and then on the flip side of that is the, then the consequences of that, right. Which is what you just talked about. Um, because then, you know, you do a database query for what's their most liked picture, right? <laughs> and, and that's the one that comes up. Right. Because it's where everybody's giving support. Exactly. Yeah. I think to me, that is one of the most exciting things about technology as, as kind of horrible of consequences that it's had in our day-to-day -day life. To me, that's what's exciting about technology is now thinking about ways where we can actually use it to improve people's lives mm -hmm. and not to hurt them. Because as time has gone on and our industry has matured, we've come to realize that there are moral, ethical implications to a lot of the work that we do. Absolutely. Um, you know, some people, I, I, I've heard some people say that like every decision in technology is a political one. I, I disagree with that mm -hmm. because like me deciding what database schema to use <laughs> isn't to me is, is not a political decision. But I do think that, yes, there are a lot of decisions that involve moral and ethical questions. Yeah. Now, well, know? and what's tricky about them, too, is they're not always obvious. Right. Um, a lot of things are inadvertent. Yeah. Um, for example, I would actually go back to your database example and say that there are many ways that we do make political decisions in our schemas, storing names, for example. If you have a first name and last name field, that is assuming things about how names are structured. That is not true everywhere in the world. That is, you know, Latin American countries, people have two last names. That's yeah. genuinely their name. But we build systems in, you know, a North American Western context where in we, bubbles. yeah, like we were like, okay, well, that's your middle name. And it's like, no, it's, it's not their middle name, you know, yeah. or, you know, there's so many different things that we just don't even think about that we store the data for in a way that does make decisions about who is valid and who is not valid and who gets to be themselves and who has to make a decision about what they're going to change just to use your website. Like a super, super basic example is I have an apostrophe in my last name. I break websites constantly. And I'm a programmer. I understand why that happens. I roll my eyes at every single person who makes technology that can't handle an apostrophe because that is lazy. But I understand why it happens. However, the number of times that I've gotten the error message, please enter a valid name, is like, harsh, man. Like, come on. My name is totally valid. That is my name. Get better programmers. So those things feel super innocent and feel like not a big deal, but almost... In a lot of ways, especially anytime you're interacting with users or taking their data or showing their data back to them, the decisions you're making about how to, um, how you're going to do that have a, a lot of implications on how you value that data and how you interpret it. Coming up, Erin talks to me about moving away from home, the hurdles of married life, and the struggle to stay healthy in a demanding industry.
Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today. I'm Nick Nisi. This is K-Ball. And I'm Rachel White. We're panelists on JS Party, a community celebration of JavaScript and the web. Every Thursday at noon central, a few of us get together and chat about JavaScript, Node, and topics ranging from practical accessibility to weird web APIs. I like your rhymes with mafia idea. Like that's a that's a good way to get it across. I'm trying to think what I could do. <laughs> K-Ball rhymes with ball. <laughs> <laughs> Join us live on Thursdays at noon central. Listen and Slack with us in real time or wait for the recording to hit. New episodes come out each Friday. Find the show at changelog.com slash jsparty or wherever you listen to podcasts. From Changelog Media, this is Away From Keyboard. I'm Tim Smith. Erin grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, but come college time, she decided to leave the big city and go to a small liberal arts school called Grinnell College. It was in the middle of a cornfield. I mean, the town is 9,000 people and like <laughs> 2,000 of that are the students. Like it's a oh. really, everything about it is the opposite of where I grew up and it was kind of fun. And it's just a bunch of really smart, nerdy people in the middle of a cornfield. So you like invent your own things mm. to do. It was great. Around senior year, I didn't, I have a computer science degree and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I uh, was one of the people who ran what we called at the time a virtual community, but we'd call it a, we'd call it social media now, but it was basically um, like a very early Facebook kind of deal, but only for my college. And because of that, one of the alumni that was on there reached out to me and asked if I was interested in interviewing at their company. And their company was in St. Paul, Minnesota. So, uh, yeah. So I was okay. like, well, that's easier than finding a job. <laughs> um, so I, I accepted that invitation. I sent a, a resume. He came down and interviewed me. Yeah. And it worked out. So I moved up here sight unseen. I put all wow. my stuff in a U-Haul and did not have a place to live. I was going to live in my boss's guest bedroom until I found an apartment, which only I only ended up being there for like a day or two. Um, but, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, had, you, had you ever been to St. Paul before? I, I had once when I was in high school. Okay. But I remembered like nothing about it. I oh. may as well have never been here before. Yeah. Are, are your parents still back in Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What, what What's it like moving away to Iowa at first and then you know, make, making a life like somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, actually it was kind of great. I mean, I, I love Chicago, like everybody who grew up there, yeah. I love it more than I should. Um, and then I left like many people who grew up there, but my parents split when I was in high school. And okay. so for the last several years of school, I felt very transient. I didn't feel like I really mm. had like all place, you know? Um, and so moving to college was like the first time as a young adult that I had felt rooted at all. And so I really like went whole hog into just making that my home. Grinnell, Iowa was my home um, to the degree that actually by the time I had to like you graduate and you have to leave. And I remember getting into like an argument with my advisor one day when he was like, you know, people have to be ready to leave. Like you're here for four years and it's just how it is. You grow up and move on. And I'm like, Sam, this is our home. Like this is where we live. This is the first time we were ever adults. And someone is telling us arbitrarily that it's time to leave. And I understand that, but it's hard. 
And he was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. It's like, yeah, because you own your house. Like you chose where you lived. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I loved it. I'm super independent anyway. So that was never an issue for me. And it was just like, this is my house now. I live here now. It, it's so interesting because you, you talk to people that, that have such a hard time leaving mm-hmm. home. And it kind of brings out new things in them and it, and it shapes them in a certain way. And then you have people like you that to a certain degree, I mean, I get the feeling like it was easy for you. Yeah. It, it was so much easier for you. Yeah. I mean, college is difficult because you're growing, you know, like it's it's things you've never had to encounter before and yeah. people you've never had to encounter before. I was always like a weird, nerdy kid at school. And like I had my people, <laughs> but I certainly wasn't whatever. Yeah. And then I went to college and it was like a whole school of me. And that was wonderful. Like, I just felt like I had found my people. Like I said, I'm pretty independent. It didn't really stress me out to be away from home. That was not a thing. I mean, maybe yeah. even to, you know, my parents chagrin a bit, but I was like, no, I'm good. See ya. Um, so yeah. yeah, there are people who have trouble with that, but I can't relate. Like I can't imagine a world where I didn't leave. Like I really kind of needed to do that. And then afterwards I was like, okay, I'm going to another state. Like it, I never really considered moving back to Chicago. Like, I don't know why it just wasn't, I was thinking maybe, maybe California because it was like, before San Francisco was broken, you know? And so like, we were like 2007. (laughs) So I was thinking about that or like Seattle or, you know, these, these big tech cities. When people still wanted to move. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like, we all knew that you couldn't afford rent there. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I was like thinking about that pretty hard, but um, no, then I ended up in Minneapolis, which was never on purpose. I always, even after I got here, I was like, okay, I got like two years here and then I'm out. Like, this is just not where I live. Stay permanently. Um, fast forward 10 years, I married in and now I'm stuck. I'm going to die here. Right. And that's just a, I've just accepted that. Yeah. Once you marry here, you, it's over. It's over. <laughs> you're like, you're here yeah. for the rest of your life. It's that's so that's what I, that's what I found out. <laughs> so true. Are you also not from here? Yeah. So I, I grew up in California. Oh, geez. And, and I, I moved here like seven years ago uh-huh. and, um, you know, married this amazing woman here mm-hmm. and now I never get to leave. Yep. It's true. Yeah. We, <laughs> we will we, never live somewhere else. We have an understanding that like he's, so my husband's from the St. Cloud area, which for people who aren't familiar is about like, it's the center of the state and it's, it's on the rural side. Like technically yeah. it's a city, but it's a city in rural Minnesota. <laughs> so he's from that area and that's where all of my in-laws are. His huge, he's got seven people in his family, seven, like seven kids, wow. huge Catholic family. They're all up there. And like, yeah, the compromise that we made was I was like, okay, I'll stay in Minnesota, but we're living in Minneapolis. I'm never not living in a city. So we need to do this. So you said, uh, you said you're married. How did the two of you meet? We met dancing. Really? Yeah. Okay. My, How did uh, that happen? So my, well, my side hustle, my other, my actual passion is uh, blues dancing, which is the dances that people have done since the beginning of blues music. People have been dancing right alongside of it. And I am a huge nerd about it. Like I have gotten into like primary source research where I'm like reading, like going through like library archives and stuff like it's super, (laughs) super unforgivably nerdy, but I love it. And I was teaching a workshop and my now husband attended it. And it's kind of funny because a friend of mine and him kind of like noticed each other, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we we're all like, okay, we're going we're gonna to get Joe and Amanda to like, it's going to work, you know? And it, it spoiler, it did not. How, how long have you been married now? We have been married three years. Um, we have been together for nine in November. What does your husband do? Uh, he does a lot of things. He is a beekeeper. He has had a lot of jobs. His his background, his undergraduate rather, is in electrical engineering, which he's basically never used. But now he has just accepted a job at the Science Museum of Minnesota where he's building exhibits. And so 
that is probably, if I had to like summarize him in a nutshell, that would be it. Like he is the kind of dude who wants to build exhibits for people to get them excited about science and also has the fabrication skills and the skills working with materials to actually do it. And and is that kind of what he's been doing throughout his life or or is this kind of a new direction for him? Um, I mean, the specifics of working at the museum are a new direction, but it's very much the culmination of like he grew up a farm kid. Mm-hmm. Um Hobby farm, he would want me to say, but still he grew up on a farm. He's always been crafting things with his hands in a very functional way. And he's always been a serial hobbyist. So he like just gets really into one thing. And they're things that most people wouldn't consider hobbies. Like for a little while, he was really into carbonation. And so he bought CO2 tanks and he was um, just carbonating everything and figuring out, you know, gaskets that could fit together and stuff. And that was just like, that was the kind of thing that got him up in the morning, you know? And so like, he's got just such a long series of those things that he can pull them all together and be like, here, I made this science exhibit for you. And you're like, cool. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, and from a career point of view, no, he's been all over. He worked at 3M as a sterilization tech. He most recently was the building manager at an auto shop for a, a year or so. Um, just like bouncing around all over. But this idea that he can just like jump in somewhere and build a thing and fix the problem that is very consistent with him. Has that been frustrating for you? You know, your your personality is more like five-year plan by the sounds of it. That's that's really not how he operates. Very no. No, you know, he, uh, so when we first got married or when we first started dating rather, I was like, okay, just so you know, I'm not getting married for five years. Like that's not happening. If that's a problem for you, Like, I'm saying it this early because I don't want to presume that that's where this is going, but I want to tell you that that's a problem for you. You should leave because it's not happening. And he was like, he basically always like thought he'd be married by 26 with babies. And we started dating at 25 or six. Mm. And so I think that partly for him, he had to be like, okay, well, I guess I have some time to kill. And so it has been a little frustrating for me because he is not naturally the kind of person that has thought about what is his career going to look like because mm-hmm. family and that sort of thing has always been so much more important to him. And he just sort of was like, well, I'll get a job. It'll work. Whereas I have been thinking about college since I was in fifth grade. Like I, I've just always known that that was my deal. Even though my, my only one of my parents even went to college, you know, like I grew up really blue collar, but I was just like, I'm a nerd. That's what we do. We go to college. And so I've always been super focused on like, I'm going to succeed, damn it. Like, I'm very ambitious in that way. And so there have definitely been moments where I've been like, well, you need to figure some stuff out. Like, you need, Joe, you need to be your own person. And I'll be over here while you're figuring that out. That's cool. But, like, you don't get to just, like, say family. And that's, like, that's your whole personality. Like, I'm not standing for that. So um, we we clashed for sure, especially when I was like, well, this I'm going to live in the city and I'm going to never live in the suburbs and I'm going to never live in the rural in a rural part of town. And we're never going to live on a farm. And he was like, oh, no. OK. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know why you stayed, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> so it worked out. Now we now it's all compromises. You can walk into a relationship and be like, these are my criteria. Like, these are my deal breakers. These are my boundaries. This is what I want out of life. And interacting with another person person like that makes you realize that there are some things that are maybe more negotiable than you realized. Mm. And so you, we came to these decision points where it was like, well, I want A and B is the thing that has to happen for this relationship to continue. And five years ago, I would have told you that 
anything less than A would be like compromising, would be uh, not compromising, but like selling out, would be selling myself short, would not mm. be giving myself like the fullest life I want to live. And now I'm realizing that in the face of, you know, this life we've built and this relationship that we have, and you're pretty cool, like actually that's a big thing to give up, but I'm going to do it. I'm fine with it. And so I think both of us have had a series of those where we had these moments where we just had to very consciously be like, yeah, we're going to stay together, even though this seems bananas. And and now we're like, I mean, I think all relationships kind of have up and, ups and downs over the long course of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very much at an up right now. We're like so sickeningly in love. It's wonderful. Um, hopefully we stay there. We'll see. I'm not naive. But like, yeah, I think that you. there are definitely moments where you just decide. You're like, I'm just deciding that we're still together because because that's what I have to do right now. And so far for us, it's worked. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting because I, I think it's true. There's so many problems, so many anxieties in life. Uh, in addition to you're two different people wanting different things, mm-hmm. sometimes vastly different things. And yeah, I, I, I think that <laughs> there are definitely moments where it's like you, you have to decide whether like, do I still want to be in this or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a yes or no question. Right. Exactly. Really. Exactly. It is a yes or no question. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And maybe one day the answer will be no. I hope, I don't think so. You know, I didn't get married thinking it would be, but I'm also like, the answer, if it's not no, it always has to be yes. Right. Like it can't ever just be, okay. Like it it has to be yes at certain points or eventually it will turn into like, oh, I didn't see this coming, but it's no now. Yeah. You know? Um, at least I think, I've been doing this nine years. What do I know? <laughs> like, get me back on your podcast in nine more years and I'll tell you all the things that are wrong about what I'm saying. But like, that's how it, that's in, that's where I have been. You know, like these, yeah. these, pivot points where we both just had to be like, well, yes. Okay. We're still doing this. Um, now I'm going to change topics drastically. And then this will be kind of the last thing that we talk about. One of the topics that I've been trying to talk about on this show has been being healthy in terms of like the work and the lives that we lead. Sometimes that means talking about burnout. Sometimes that means talking about and facing mental health issues. I personally have anxiety. I've talked to some people that have bipolar disorder and, and some others that, that deal with depression. Um, in your personal case, what have you done to personally stay healthy? I have had to do a lot in that regard because I have uh, suffered from depression since I was almost single digit ages. I have ADHD. I have generalized anxiety. These are all things I deal with. I also burned out very, very hard in about 2015, I think. And honestly, spent like the next two years recovering, which is not a thing I can afford to do again, even if it was fun and it wasn't fun. So these are all things that are really important to me. And I'm definitely still figuring it out. I do not have any illusions that I'm that I'm good now. You know, Um, I go to therapy. I take my drugs. I have gotten a lot more strict about sort of like the borders between work and not work in that some of it's little things like I don't have Slack notifications on my phone. Like I have Slack, but I don't know when someone DMs me. Like I have to open it up to look. And my team knows and I do get email notifications, but my my company really doesn't email people. So I'm basically like, that's the emergency button. Like if you right. need me, email me, I'll get it. It's fine. But otherwise, I'll see it when I see it. I've been trying to be so much more conscious of just the thing, the things that all human bodies need to be healthy, sleep, healthy food, exercise. Um, I personally think that 
like therapy is is just as important for your brain as exercise is for your body. You know, these are all things that I just am trying to be better about in a way that, especially in college, where my school was a bunch of overachievers and we were, <laughs> no one was living a healthy life, like yeah. at all. You know, and it's like coming out of that, I I have been trying to redefine what hard work looks like and what success looks like so that it doesn't have to inv- involve breaking myself to get it, which is a slightly, I want to acknowledge, disingenuous because part of why I am successful now is the fact that I made a lot of bad choices about it earlier. And so it's easy for me to say, now that I am a manager and now that I, you know, and I'm setting an example for people and I have like some minor presence on the internet and I speak at conferences, like I've developed some stuff now and I'm like, it's easy to be like, cool, well, I'm going to have work-life balance now. (laughs) I don't know how one gets here without doing the things I did that were not super healthy um so i just want to acknowledge that i don't have great answers but it's um really disingenuous for me to pretend like oops no one should do that you know because because unfortunately i think our industry expects people to be superhuman um expects people to do more than they can or should sometimes our society our society that's true that's true (laughs) i mean i think that in some ways tech amplifies that because we do have these hyper-connected lives this like concept of the meritocracy where it's Mm -hmm. like all right how many open source projects do you contribute to like which is a lie but yeah oh it's the worst you know and it's like well we're not going to hire you if you don't also program in your spare time like that is slowly getting better but it's still a real thing i feel like you know i look at i try to gauge my own boundaries and my own keep my life balance but i also feel a responsibility to try to create an industry where that is less necessary and like be very conscious in my own hiring be conscious in the advice that I am giving people or in the way, like the example I'm setting for my employees, and then not accidentally rewarding the people who do the other thing. Because yeah. it's like, we're so used to doing that. You know, like if somebody puts in like, an, you know, 60 hours and saves the day, you want to be like, oh, you're great. But what I should really be like is never do that again. <laughs> like never, ever, ever work a 60 hour week again. We need to talk about why I got to that point. You know, I feel responsible for trying to make it so that people don't have to destroy themselves the way that I did. Maybe that's naive in a pipe dream, but it's also like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know any other way to live that's like moral and that I'm okay with. That's Erin O'Neill. She's Erin O on Twitter. AFK is edited by me, Tim Smith. The beats are from the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Smith Timmy Tim on Twitter. You can find the show at AFK underscore show. Thank you to our sponsor, Linode. Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. Assuming you're loving this show, go rate, review, or recommend it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to send me a letter or suggest someone for the show, send an email to afk at changelog.com. So I usually ask guests to tell me a funny anecdote so I can put that at the end of the show. Aaron's answer was perfect. I haven't like left the house in a week because I work from home. So like I haven't even had the opportunity for funny stuff to happen to me. Um, So yeah. I'm Tim Smith, and this is Away From Keyboard. 